Hi, welcome to the LMB Show. I'm Ellen, your host for this great talk show that informs. I'm coming to you from KZSM.org in San Marcos, Tech. KZSM is true community radio. If you miss my show, you can follow me on SoundCloud and type in the LNB show or Facebook and type in Ellen Braverman. I have encores on Mondays from 8 to 9. Now, before I introduce my guests, I'm going to read my disclaimer so I don't cause any trouble for KZSM, myself, or my guests. Here it goes. The opinions expressed on the show are those of its hosts and guests and not of the opinions of KZSM. SM or its governing body, S-M-T-X-C-R-A. Well, I'll tell you, I've got a fantastic guest. Her name is Carolyn Parker. And together, we are going to talk about life's journeys, the many jobs that we have had, and where it is and has taken us. So if you're in for a bumpy ride for the next hour with lots of laughs, <laughs> come join us and help me welcome my next guest, Carolyn Parker, who is my good friend and neighbor, who has led a very interesting life from teaching Swahili, that's right, Swahili, and African studies to being executive director of Texas Aid Network to chairperson of the Ethical Action Committee for Austin Ethical Society. All right. Welcome to the show, Caroline. Thank you, Ellen. I'm glad to be here. Yes, I'm ready to start. Um, so how about if we start first talking about growing up in Texas? Well, that's kind of a big subject. Texas is a big state. So <laughs> perhaps we ought to just talk about me and how yes, I you. grew up. Yes. But <clears throat> I always think back to those times, which were um, a long time ago, uh, back in the 40s and 50s. Um, my father was um, a serviceman before World War II began. He was serving in Panama in the coastal artillery. I have a letter that he wrote to my mother uh, after December 7th, 1941, saying, well, I guess we're in it now. But oh. yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it always, I have cold chills now just thinking about what must have been going on in their lives at that point. Part of this is the romance of my parents meeting and marriage, which... <laughs> frankly, perhaps gave me a mistaken idea of what life should be like. But as I grew up, I thought it was one of the most romantic things I'd ever heard. And it, to me, just like a movie, she was one of several girls that his aunt, uh, Aunt Laura, she became my great aunt, had, she taught school in East Texas. She knew Mother as one of her students when she was younger. Right. And Mother eventually uh, became a teacher in the same area where Aunt Laura was also teaching and working. And she wanted the these girls, various girls that she met around other teachers, write to her nephew. He was out of the country. He was serving his country. And pen pals would be just the thing. Apparently, most of those girls wrote him these really mushy letters, you know, and how much they just adored him, as it were. And he, very handsome fellow. So, of course, it was natural that they would. But Mother was a little more reticent and shy. So she would tell him jokes and tell him all the funny things that happened. Right. She told him the story was this young serviceman had asked her out. He'd ask her what her favorite candy was and she told him it was pangburns because that was a fancy kind of candy right she said but really i like peanut brittle so he came home from panama on leave he came to visit his aunt laura in east texas and he wanted to meet the young woman who'd been writing to him about her favorite candy and with him he brought a plastic purse plastic was new was very fancy it was really a special gift to get this right. plastic purse and it was 
filled with peanut brittle. Oh. Yeah. The next segment of that story is that when they went home, he told Aunt Laura, I'm going to marry that girl. And that's just warped me forever, thinking that, you know, the hero comes in, he's, he knows so many things about you already, that he knows just how to act, knows immediately that you all are going to get married, and it's wonderful. Life isn't always like that, but that's the kind of background, you had. background that I had with a very loving kind of family. I think my, I always thought of my father as a hero, and then I began to think of my mother as a hero because she was, um, she was a school teacher. Mm-hmm. She taught for 30 years, but she was handicapped the entire time that she did. Why was and, she handicapped? Well, that was health care in oh. the late 30s. She had a burst appendix. There was an infection, became a bone infection, and sort of a domino effect. It affected her ability to walk after that. Oh. So I sort of thought my father was doubly a hero because not only did he do, not only was he awarded the bronze star for ba- bravery right. during the war, but he also knew that he was going to give his life to taking care of mother. Right. So he was the other half of her to help her physically for so many years, and he did till the day he died. Wow. It was, they were married for over 50 years. So did she still teach when she was in a wheelchair? Well, she, I think this began to happen after. It was high school when she had the burst appendix. She'd had two years of recovery before she could go back and finish her high school diploma. Then she went to a junior college, uh, Paris Junior College, to get enough credit hours to be able to teach. Because during the war, remember, there was a shortage of everything, including teachers. Right. So she could teach fifth grade there in uh, Tyler uh, with just an associate degree. Later, when she and Daddy were married, and after I was in the first grade, no, kindergarten, that right. kept me out of the house then, right. she started back at the University of Houston, and Daddy helped her there, too. It was really, I grew up, you know, he's helping her, and she's doing, and, and it's, I got to, even got to go to classes with her when I was a little girl, so she she was a hero as well. She, she pretty much uh, fought her way through a lot of things, including some discrimination that, beca- just because of her handicap. I feel like I learned a lot from both of them. Mm-hmm. Not only, I mean, I was an only child, no brothers, so I was the one who had to help daddy work on the car. Right. But I was also the one that got to go fishing with him, and I got to go to the stock car races. So, Ooh. yeah. So I learned a thing or two about uh, screwdrivers and wrenches, <laughs> and those have st- stood me in a good stead for quite a while. And for mother, just simply the courage and determination to persevere in the face of just about all odds. Yeah. Uh, so both of them really, I think, gave me a good start. And if that's growing up in Texas, I think it's the best way to grow up in Texas with these really <laughs> brave people doing their doing their best. So what was your first job that you got? Oh, my first job. Well, I mean. Yeah, let's go up a little further. Let's go up a little further. Let's go up a little further. Let's go up th- to uh, <clears throat> after you graduate. And you went to, what school did you go to? You went to? Well, I started at the University of Houston. I did a bachelor's degree there in English. Right. And then. Um, you went to did some graduate Did some graduate work. And then I was married by that time to my first husband. Right. His interest was in African studies. Oh. Good Texas girl. You want to do what your husband wants to do. You want to be the helpmate. <laughs> Did I not have that example already of how yes, the two right, work together? Right, right. So I said, well, they have African literature
literature. I'll just start, you know, my major was English. I would just be reading African literature in English. I sort of got a mistaken viewpoint, if you will, about what African literature might be <laughs> at that point, but it did turn me in that direction. So that then when he got a Swahili fellowship to uh, University of Washington, of course I went and I was still in the English department, but then I had to make some choices because I was studying an awful lot of medieval literature and things and I was like, this is not African literature. No. I wound up uh, in the Department of Anthropology, which is strange, I suppose. Comparative literature required three languages and I only had two. Uh, so I needed to so work. So what two languages did you have? In, well, English and yeah. German. And so I... Where'd you learn German? Just I was in school. Was, oh. I studied it. Oh, okay. Uh, the third language was going to be a problem and I was in a hurry. I mean, I'd already done some graduate work and I, I was maybe... Getting on in years, it must have been about 22, 23 at the time. Getting on in years. So out of time, really need to get Jeez, a move on 22. here. <laughs> and so I was still going to night school at 22, <laughs> so trying I, to get my BA. Yeah, so I said, I just really need to, to do something. So I, I realized that the anthropology department had folklore. This was in Washington. This was in Washington. It's back when we got this. So I said, right. look at the English department. I'm getting a lot of medieval. Mm, I can't do comp lit because I don't have en enough languages. Let me just move over to the anthropology department because they've got folklore. Right. That's close enough. Oh, that's, yeah. I was 23, 24. <laughs> it's close <laughs> enough. And so I began there. Um, and that's where I began to develop an interest in Swahili proverbs, which was my f ultimate research interest, um, because the anthropology department happened to be where they taught Swahili. <laughs> so, Isn't it amazing how things just drop into one's lap? It's, it is amazing. It's it, in the sense that there are not that many times when, at least early on, I made deliberate decisions. It was opportunity or circumstances. Oh, that's interesting. And also interesting. That, that sense of staying in line with the husband's career goals as well at that time. And they weren't teaching Swahili. This was in, I mean, how many places taught Swahili? Not so many, not so many. And uh, it was fortunate that when I did, lost the first husband, took over the Swahili fellowship. And, oh, did you? <laughs> well, yeah. So, <laughs> you mean they gave you his? Kind of. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, now, can you read it and write it? Yes, I taught it. That's right. You That's where you were trying to get That's to. That's what I was they, trying to get yeah, to. To get me to the. Well, I'm sorry. It just takes a long time with all these rabbit trails to get through <laughs> to get the bits noticed. of my life. I I've noticed that. that. Sorry, I tell too much. <laughs> That's I all right. I haven't revealed too much at the same time. But no, no, you're doing okay. okay. So far, so good. Yeah. The, the thing is that that part, uh, being a graduate student in an undergraduate language class, I was required to write an extra paper. Okay. It seemed easy enough right. to start writing that extra paper on Swahili proverbs because they're short right, <laughs> and easy. <laughs> right. Turns out, no, they may be short, but they're really deep and they have a, lo a lot of work to be done on them. And that became what would have been had other detours not happened, again, life and circumstances, would have been my life now. Getting back into it. Getting back can to you, it. Can you give us a, can you say something oh, in Swahili and a proverb? Uh, okay, you're not going to like this one, but I'm going to do it anyway. Well, as long as you don't curse, we're okay. No, 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 it's not. It's not. It's just that this is the one that's on my mind right now because sure. I've, I've, I've been away for many years. We're 
we're talking about a long time ago. Yeah, right. I was 24. I'm so, so not that young anymore. <laughs> uh, and I have been literally away, away from okay. that data. So, but I recently have, have found, I found a notepad that had several proverbs on it. I said, well, let me just look at these. They were translated by somebody else into English. I was curious about them. Do I still have my chops? Can I do it? And um, the one that's been puzzling me, so that you hear the Swahili, is Arietota Hadui Oh, I can't even remember. I've forgotten it now. Arietota Hadui Kutota. Okay. The, t- and the text that puzzles me is, is the verb in there, tota. It's normally translated, the one who's poor doesn't know that he's poor. Right. And that we think that the happy poor are out there knowing, you know, and accepting of their circumstances. But the verb tota means sinking, drowning, immersing yourself over your head wow. in something. Look. Right. So I looked at it and began to translate it as the one who's drowning the one who's sinking doesn't know that he's drowning. Right. Then I wondered if that's literally true. So now I've got to go do some research on what does that mean? What are, what do we know scientifically, if you will, about drowning itself? I need to go find some people who are native speakers of Swahili. And Where are you going to find them? them? Well, might, there might be some foreign students on campus. One can, I live that's in true. Hope. Might find that's somebody true. to talk to. Um, you can go on the internet. Yes. Well, oh, I, I did. You did. There's always, there's, that was the shock was realizing the, the number of resources that are out there now that were not yeah. invented. My database is a card file. Mm-hmm. I mean, I literally, I have thousands of variants of Swahili Proverbs on cards. Mm-hmm. And my index is another card file that I made by hand of keywords in all of those Proverbs. So we didn't have computers in those days. <laughs> I will tell you, I came back from my last, I think it was my last trip to East Africa, and no, it was maybe second last, someone, I said, what, you know, what a bunch of cards I had and how difficult it was to find things in there. And she said, well, you know, there's this thing called an apple. <laughs> and I went, what's that? <laughs> And that so, was that was my next question. Oh, like you went to uh, Africa. Africa, yeah, a couple times. Well, part of that was uh, at the end of your graduate work yeah. in anthropology, you need to go to the field. You you can't just read about this in books. You've got to go somewhere right. and do it. And that's part of the um, thing about needing to know Swahili so that I could go to Africa. By that time, the ex-husband was the ex-husband, and I went to Africa by myself. And he, I don't know, went to California, made a lot of money. I have no idea. All right. Well, no. <laughs> no. Hold that thought. Sid's waving to me. We've got to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Carolyn's adventures in Africa. Howdy, howdy, y'all. This is Tina, your host of the 5 O'Clock Friday Show. Join me every Friday from 5 to 7 p.m. I'll bring you some fantastic music in rock, country, hip-hop, blues, and more. Don't forget to catch my updates in traffic and community events that are going on around town. The 5 o'clock Friday show, every Friday from 5 to 7 p.m. on KZSN.org. Hey, San Martians, read any good books lately? Read any bad books lately? Any books you'll never forget? Any books you want to fling directly into the trash? Whatever you've been reading, or not reading, join us Tuesdays 4 to 6 for Bookmarked, all about books and reading in San Marcos and the world. Hi, welcome back. If you just tuned in, you're listening to The Ellen B. Show with me, Ellen. I'm your host, and I'm coming to you on KZSM from San Marcos, Texas, 
a true community radio. And my guest for today is Caroline Parker, and we're talking about life experiences and jobs and where life takes us. And right now from Texas... Caroline is talking about her journey to Africa. All right, Caroline, so where did you go? What year was it, anyway? This was uh, 1971. Right, and you're fully versed in Swahili. You know how to read it and write it, and you eventually will teach it. Eventually, although that wasn't my intention. I was going going to Africa to be the young anthropologist. Oh, you well, I was wondering how anthropology, you know, that's where I was headed. That's so. Did you do anything in anthropology in in Kenya? But and did you find anything? No, that that's the archaeologist (laughs) part. That was that was bones or pots. That's archaeology, and and monkeys would be the physical anthropologist who did. I don't do monkeys either. (laughs) What do you do? People, people. Oh, people. Culture. Study people and culture. That's what I should have studied in um, college. Anthropology. I love people and culture. Yeah. It's the thing. Oh, all yeah. right, go ahead. So it helped. Anyway, I was I was out to do basically ethnographic field research, and I really had intended initially was being planned. Remember the ex husband who was <laughs> also at that point still interested in Africa, and our intention was to go to Tanzania. Right. The problem came about that I didn't get research clearance for Tanzania, and I went, oh dear. And so what I what I did do was um, eventually get clearance to go to. Kenya okay. to the coast province to tell them I mean the subject matter was Swahili proverbs uh, proverbs themselves are really an important part of African culture it, it's almost immediately noticeable we don't use proverbs so much in our daily lives in America no we know some we know a stitch in time saves nine a couple right. of those kinds of things but most people in Africa find that they are used almost daily in their really? lives and they will have a very large corpus of texts that are things that they have heard, things that they have used, and they know a lot about what values that they're expressing. Uh, it's, it's to an outsider, a startling what kind of, of, of cultural behavior, if you will. Okay. Um, so it, that makes it of interest to an outsider. The officials in Kenya, fortunately, made it of interest to them, and they're very proud of that part of their culture, and so they were happy to have somebody come study it, do some more work on it. It. So I felt very lucky that I managed to get into the right place at the well, right what time. What would you What would you study? Well, what you What I did my method right. twofold. The one that happened most of the time was looking through written texts that already had collected proverbs, which are, are like in the old days of collecting information was sort of like collecting insects and mounting them right. on little boards, which is not the same as really knowing the meaning right. of the proverbs and knowing the inside of what's going on there. You have to talk to people who use the Proverbs to find out more about they, what they mean. For example, if you, uh, we have uh, a proverb, where there's a will, there's a way. Right. And there's one very similar in Swahili. Iwaponi panangia, where there is the intent, the will, there is a way. Right. I, I can't translate it any other way. It's just, that's the same proverb, isn't it? We'll know. Okay. <laughs> when we use it, uh, we talk about encouraging people. Where there's a will, there's a way. Right. You know, if you're going to say, say, this is really hard to do, and I'll say, well, Ellen, where there's a will, there's a way. Right. You'll figure it out. In the Swahili culture, a, a way that, it, that is used 
Iwapunia Panangia. If you had wanted to, you would have found a way. Oh. Different. Oh, yeah. Same words, different kind of meaning. And so finding that out, though, meant you needed to go and find people who knew what does it mean. Have they heard it? Have they used it? How did they use it? You wouldn't have found it in a textbook? Well, nobody was doing research on context that way at that time. It was still that collecting. I've collected 100 texts. Well, what do they mean? I don't know. So, okay. Or what do they mean? Well, I think it means from my my own value system. And remember, you're looking at, in Swahili culture, you're looking at a Muslim society. There's, there is, it's on the coast of Africa. It stands maybe, 10 miles inland from the seashore right it goes down about a thousand miles that's where all the arab and indian trading would have and chinese trading would have gone on right those many years ago uh with uh bantu native african peoples also living in those areas intermarrying exchanging cultural information and developing a new language a new ideology a new way of looking at life so not sophisticated myself enough to know all of the differences between what what we see right as we would say what is what comes from the our european heritage and right. what comes from our, our later right. cultural experiences as americans peeling that peeling those layers back right. would take some time but we're looking at something that cannot possibly be presumed to have that many influences from European culture. There are some language things that pop up now and then. The Portuguese were there, so we have uh, the word mesa, flat surface, table. So in Swahili, that's a table. Or bastola, you can sort of figure out that that's a pistol. Um, Those things that came from that influence. But whether or not not there were were further items shared is is another set of questions. So what I had to do was try to unpeel the proverbs. So you just talked to people? Talked to people, interviewed them. And also, once in a while, someone laughed at me and said yeah that's a research technique get into trouble because if I if I did something wrong people were sure to correct me and oftentimes if I had enough presence of mind while I was dodging the correction uh, I could uh, see that they were using proverbs very rapidly (laughs) to tell me how to straighten up and fly around (laughs) nothing serious just just correcting my behavior and in various ways because by that time I was wearing the veil look trying to not blend in, but try to be less offensive as a Westerner. So oh, people, so, you, so pe- you dressed? Well, I Western clothes, but wearing the the veil is this full body. Uh, it's called a buoy buoy, and it right. covers your entire body. There's this sort of long flap that can go over your head and pull it around and cover your face, depending on where you were and how strict they were, how oh. much you wanted to be. Yeah, I was going to ask you about being a woman in Africa during those times. Well, it's um, interesting. interesting. <laughs> It was interesting. There was, uh, it was the 70s. Right. Um, there were a lot of people visiting who uh, were trekking and, and, you know, hiking about. Hippie folks, I guess we would call them. This was not that long after independence. So the distinction between being um, Mzungu, basically white person, European person. Right. Actually, Mzungu, not white per se, but Western culture. Right. You could be an African-American and be still be a Mzungu right. when you came there uh carried with it some small level of respect mm-hmm. so that it carried safety to right, some extent right, with it. Right. so how uh, long did you stay there the first time i was there for 14 months 14 months 14 months 
Wow. That was, yeah. And I stayed mostly on the island of Lamu. Yeah. I also stayed some with a family in Mombasa and a brief trip, a couple of three weeks up to a small island uh, north of Lamu called uh, on Pate Island and to a village called Chundwa. And you've been back since? Yes, but not to Kenya. Uh, this was after uh, I went to the I taught at the University of Texas. And you did Swahili in the University of yeah. Texas. Yeah, and see, okay, let me just backtrack them for just a moment so you understand. Okay. I went to do the field research. I was doing the research on Swahili proverbs. This was folklore, right? A, of an area of anthropological inquiry and interest. But the job came up to teach Swahili in there, Texas. In Texas, there weren't jobs so handy. Right. available right in African studies right or folklore at right. that point and Texas is where I was born my family was not too far away and I thought I'll just go I haven't finished my dissertation yet I'm you know I'm just ready to do I'll just go there for a year and then I'll I'll, I'll get go someplace else and I stay I stay she's still here I'm still here in fact part of that still here is that I met my second husband later right with so let's go back so how yeah. how many students were in your classes <laughs> one or two no not lots dozens really yes somebody <laughs> sorry she's laughing this is the 70s i know 70s, okay? and it's texas i know so, and it's texas somebody told let me not disparage any of the athletic programs at the University of Texas oh, at Austin, no. but That's... told in general, shall we say, some people of athletic persuasion. <laughs> That's why Healy was, was an easy. English was an easy language. Was an easy language. Yeah, and so. Um, Oh, you, you it has all, 15 noun classes. You, you, you had all the athletes. It has agglutinative verbs that you can write out in a math. Oh, no. So, yes, I had lots of people in my <laughs> classes initially. What it, happened? Oh, it dwindled. <laughs> I'm sorry. I really... <laughs> nice young people, but but I will say that there there was there was no formal African studies program at UT. There was no way to build toward wanting a foreign language program right. that was going especially to, in the seventies. Yeah, well. And so, so what we had were a lot of people looking for something that was easier. Right. And I, I will tell you, I did try to break it down and make it simple because my understanding of linguistics at that point was much simpler. And so we worked our way through it all. But... Um, did they ever learn Swahili? Uh, sure. I didn't give those grades away. Uh, <laughs> and they're... I, there was a discussion of my grades at one point because they were a little too realistic. So we had to, I'm sorry, there was some well, thought sure. that it was supposed to be easier than right. it was. Right. And eventually there was sort of a falling away of interest from those of athletic persuasion. <laughs> and they were... Um, oh, I'm sorry. Wonderful people. Sid will have to edit some of this. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm sorry. I, I just, you asked... I hadn't even thought about that in years, but it, it was fun. And I did end up with, with a smaller group. There were students who were seriously interested in African studies, right. students who were interested in other disciplines who wanted the Swahili background, but indeed African students who were interested in, say, the seminar on Swahili epic poetry that was 
I think the high point of that time for me. Uh, I taught other classes that were cross-listed in other departments like women in Africa or, oh, or something. Right. But I'll say for that one, right. that was an evening class, which made it easier for some people to attend. But once I announced the course, course requirements, after the break, only half of them came back. <laughs> <laughs> So I mm. so so can you still teach at college now? I could if try. you wanted to, I could try. I'm unlike some people. I really am enjoying retirement. <laughs> <laughs> I am too. <laughs> I wanna. Oh, I'm sorry. Sid's giving me the signal. <laughs> we have to break. We'll see you in a little bit. Bye. Experience San Marcos. You could come to the river and jump in or go downtown and take a run around to see all the local merchants. But if you want to feel San Marcos, you need to tune in on Tuesday nights at 9 to 10 p.m. and listen to Downtown Funk with Sammy the Bull playing all the top hits, top grooves, obscure funk from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. So if you want to get your groove on and reminisce or if you want to feel like it was back in the day tune in on tuesday nights at 9 p.m hey san marcus this is virginia from equality right now tune in every saturday afternoon at 4 p.m for lively discussions on gender issues and rights as well as race and relationship equality be sure to check out my facebook page and tune in to kzsm.org your true community radio Welcome back. If you just tuned in, you're listening to the Ellen B. Show with me, Ellen, as your host. I'm coming to you on KZSM from San Marcos, Texas, a true community radio. I am talking with Caroline Parker, talking about her life, which has been very interesting. Some of it's been funny. Some of it has not been funny. But right now, before the break, we were stuck in teaching Swahili in Texas state no university of texas i'm sorry university of texas the other one (laughs) okay all right caroline (laughs) so what happened between that and how did you get to being the executive director of texas aids network ah okay and i'll try to not give you huge amounts of details and all that i taught at the university of texas uh and stayed because i met my second husband Okay. Um, the love of my life. Okay. Um, we were married for 36 years. Ooh. And the um, need to stay in Texas, I, I did not meet the requirements to get tenure at the University of Texas. Oh. So I had to find something else to do. Okay. That was a trip back to Africa to the University of Dar es Salaam. I spent time working there. How uh, much time did you? That was um, 21 months. Did your husband go with you? He did. He did. He worked at an engineering firm in Dar es Salaam. Oh, he was an engineer. Well, he was a draftsman. Right. But he he worked primarily as office manager there at uh, Mbega Melvin in Dar es Salaam, which was a big experience for him because he didn't speak Swahili. Yeah, that's right. Uh, And we actually, he tried. We had a few lessons and he said, I don't (laughs) (laughs) don't need this. It ain't working. No, he, he didn't need it. He said he'd just go on and do what he could. And so it he we learned a lot about living we learned a lot about each other and
and uh, I think that was uh, good for yeah. us as people and as a couple. Yeah. But uh, after the contract with the University of Islam ended, we came back to the States, and oh. I had to decide what to do. Were you sorry uh, to come back? Were you sorry to come back? By that time, not so much. I, I was in tears when I left Kenya, but pretty much in tears with relief when I left Dar es Salaam, mostly because that was a difficult time for Tanzania. They had closed their borders with Kenya. Oh. There were a lot of, of issues with infrastructure. So it was it was a lot more of a struggle okay. to do basic things there. And okay. so I was I felt tense and I was really glad to sort Come of be back. coming back. Right. Uh, they've things have changed now and right. it's certainly it's they're certainly wonderful people and wonderful country, but it was difficult at that point. So, uh, so we came, came back, back to the here. States and I needed to find something to do. I began to work with nonprofit organizations mm -hmm. and also got involved with local politics, if you will, through neighborhood association so now when when were you a lobby before or after this after when we got to texas aids network that's where we began to do the lobbying for real i did in the sense that i did as an as a neighborhood representative often have to testify at hearings with the city council and things like that. Oh, did you? But, oh. well, eventually served on the yeah. planning commission, but that wasn't That's part right. of Texas AIDS Network, so <laughs> we're gonna skip that one and go to that the piece about the network. But okay. that, because I was staying in Texas, that meant I wasn't gonna be able to do uh, as much with the original work that I was planning with Swahili and that research. So that just was a left turn. Right, complete. Yeah, turning yeah. away. And uh, while I still try to maintain some, maintain some context and interest, it, I suddenly discovered this whole new world, what's going on around me yeah. in my neighborhood. As in terms of looking for a, a job, the opportunity came up eventually. Um, one, for a while I worked with the nursing association and then, then I began to work with Texas AIDS Network. It was not because I had a lot of knowledge about healthcare, although I had to get a lot of, the learning curve was pretty steep about that. Right. Um, it was the policy related experience that I had gained from working with the neighborhoods that led me to that opportunity with Texas AIDS Network. Right. Because part of what we were doing, that was an, that was an organization that, this was in the 80s, Mm -hmm. um, early 80s. The epidemic was in uh, full swing and there were very few options for healthcare at that time. And it meant that there needed to be a voice uh, speaking at several levels right. to raise awareness of the issue, but also to look for options for healthcare and medication. Um, so what I did was learn an awful lot. Right. Uh, I had had two family members that died from AIDS. Oh, you did. So I had that level of knowledge which was actually very slim knowledge. I was just as much in the dark as anybody else, but was ha had in about some right. things, but had at least gone through that experience. Um, I was short and round, so I looked harmless. When <laughs> you were short and round. <laughs> well, it's true. I mean, I did look fairly harmless, which right. makes me sort of a bit, uh, sort of a stealth bomb, if you will, in going into these situations. And so, but, and I had had some experience in dealing with uh, elected officials. Right. And so it was a, a 
putting all of that together, uh, I did have to learn an awful lot more about the healthcare system. Our system was so fractured. And oddly enough, here we are these many years later, and it's still, still, fractured. still fractured. And it sounds like it's going to be even more fractured. The concerns that we had at that time was access to medications. How did someone who was in the early days uh, had contracted a life-threatening illness, uh, how could they get the medication that could keep them alive for some while longer? could help them have a better quality of life during that period. Uh, one of the things that HIV does when it becomes full-blown AIDS is it affects your immune system to where you are uh, vulnerable to any number of infections that right. we would not normally, with yeah. healthy immune systems, be subject to. Um, so getting access to the things that would, would treat these various things was extremely important. There was, at the point I came into the uh, AIDS network, there was the Ryan White Care Act, which provided some uh, help. But people who didn't have insurance, insurance that had caps, lifetime caps on care, medication programs that only offered it limited access to certain medications. Mm -hmm. We went through drawing sort of diagrams and charts with different colored lines and at one point even saying you know well one way to get medications is to go to prison uh, because if you're in prison they have to give you care right. it's not necessarily going to give you access every time to your medications but because there are complications about right. how that works but it was difficult at the time thinking about how do we get more access to medications yeah. and then also how do we get more funding for prevention prevention uh, at that time to an extent was just say no to drugs, sex, whatever else might be a problem. Not exactly an effective strategy. Yeah. It, there was there were debates about what do we teach in schools for sex education? Um, how frank can you be in talking to young people? Mm -hmm. How honest are you going to be in talking to young people? The dishonesty of saying that condoms are not an effective means of protection. Um, there is a matter of operator error. Mm -hmm. Condoms do have to be used consistently. Mm -hmm. They have to be used correctly. Mm -hmm. uh, but they're one of the most highly tested things we've got out there for medical devices, and it, uh, they generally won't be a problem. And yet we still are dealing with a system that today we'll talk about condoms as being flawed, as being ineffective, and not giving realistic information about what people right. need to do for right. fear that they might be doing something somebody doesn't want them to do. Right. And and I'm, I guess I, I guess I'm speaking a little too frankly at this point, but no, I, you're there fine. was 15 or more years of doing that sort of began to wear. How long were you the uh, executive director? Long time. Over 15 years. I forgot wow. to count. You know, but wow, that's a long time. But it's it is something of something of a burnout thing. I had to, had to leave to take care of my mother uh -huh. uh, who developed dementia and um, my father had passed away several years before and she was still handicapped so she still needed extra help right so I did that but why once I walked away I really did walk away in my mind because I realized how deeply disturbing this ongoing concern is this odd thing and I'll tell you this this sort of fits for a while I just didn't want to read about HIV I didn't want to read about these things. When I eventually, in this period, my husband passed away, 2014, a long period of grief. I looked for a community 
mm-hmm. to in, be involved with, uh, people I could talk to, uh, people who shared my values and my interests and things like that. I ended up with at the Ethical Society of mm-hmm. Austin. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a, an, an eye opener for me in any number of ways. It was a, it was um, a non-theistic religion, if you will. Uh, but also a good community of of like-minded people who were concerned about doing good. Eventually, I became the ethical action chair of that group. Um, That just, our motto is deed before creed, meaning in essence, you know, whatever you want to believe is fine. Let's just don't get all all excited about it and, and, and argue about it. Let's work together to come to solutions for problems that are real. Uh, as it turned out, when I became ethical action chair, there were a lot of problems out there that everybody wanted to work on. And it was like, I can't do this. If it's everything, we have to organize. I like to do that. And so what I landed upon, found out about were the United Nations uh, Sustainable Development Goals. Those are 17 goals uh, that were put together in 2015 uh, as a follow-up to the Millennial Development Goals and as a plan for what we're going to do between now and 2030. So the UN Sustainable Development Goals for 2030. 17 segments of all of these human and social problems, environmental problems, things like that. I said, let's look at those and let's pick a few, maybe three, that we can use as our priorities and let's focus on those. So we chose three and one of them last year and this year happens to be SDG number three, which is good health and well-being, which brought me back to HIV and talking and studying more about that. And if you want, we can talk about it in a minute, I guess. All right. We've got to sit is signaling me for another break, and we'll see you in a little bit. Bye. Join KZSM.org at the Farmer's Market on Saturdays from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. Stop by our booth to meet the KZSM DJs on Samarcus's own community radio station. This is a fabulous time to learn what KZSM.org is all about and how you can help by volunteering, donating, or underwriting. Then pick up some fantastic veggies, essential oils, local honey, much-needed coffee, as well as much, much more. We will see you there. The end of a very long week is at hand. You've made it through. It's time for a drink. Pour a cold one, pet the cat, take your shoes off, and just like that, I'm right here with you in a blink. Spinning the tunes you want to hear and talking to people you want to know. I'm there, kzsm.org, 8 to 10 Central Standard Time. On Fridays, you're listening to Friday Night with Care. Hi, welcome back. If you just tuned in, you are listening to the LMB show with me, Ellen, as your host. Um, my, I have an encore show on Mondays between 8 and 9, and you can follow me on SoundCloud or Facebook. SoundCloud, you have to type in the LMB show, Facebook, Ellen Braverman. And I'm here with Carolyn Parker, and we're having a good time. And right now, Caroline is the... We we are we're talking about Caroline being chair of the ethical action committee for Austin Ethical Society, right, Caroline? Yep. All right, take yep. it away. <laughs> Just punch the button and I turn on. Right, as we go. 
Well, we were talking about HIV and the yes, we how I mean one of the things that talking to you has reminded me is how coincidental some things are, or maybe that's not the best word, but in life how what we plan doesn't always work out and other things happen to change our direction. So I had changed from, I had for family reasons, had left the Texas AIDS Network and also in my heart and mind abandoned HIV because I was just heartbroken, if you will, yeah. with how much we had accomplished but how far we had yet to go. And the grief that comes as people die, as you lose them, grows. Right. It doesn't get less. Right. So... I uh, reached a point where I just didn't want to think about it or talk about it or read about it. I occasionally got emails because I had certain alerts set up in my email uh, program and couldn't read these things. Now, um, as it happens, I'm reading about them again. And part of that is having found the Ethical Society of Austin, Mm -hmm. serving as the Ethical Action Chair, trying to narrow down our focus, if you will, on the many things that interest and concern us as we have this heartfelt desire to make the world a better place. Right. So focusing on good health and well-being have been looking at HIV uh, and other things, uh, other factors. I mean, this month is National Blood Donor Month for the Red Cross. So of course, we want to promote the giving of blood right. for the, not just this month, but on a regular basis, because we regularly have a need for blood in the blood banks. We focus on nutrition, the nutritional needs of the elderly, the nutritional needs of school children, making donations to the, the Central Texas Food Bank, which is connected also to Hayes County Food Bank. In 2018, the Ethical Society of Austin and contributed 5,000 meals to that. Wow. That sounds small, but we're a small organization. So I sort of felt we were kind of fighting above our weight for that. But I came back then, HIV is a piece of concern, a part of this concern as well, under the sustainable development goals. And just as it passing, if you will, information that it's still a raging epidemic out there. It is still affecting particularly the African-American community. And I still think we're not doing enough for prevention. We do have some better medications. We have better prevention in terms of medication, but we also need to talk about behavioral preventions. And I think, to be honest, we're not being honest about About what needs to be done. But we also, and I I know that you wanted to to talk about this, and I do too. This was, in fact, you seem to have run on about myself, and I really want to talk about SDG 13, which is also a priority for the Ethical Society of Austin. In fact, this is the third year since we started looking at the SDGs, that it was our top priority. Most of our members voted to say, yes, let's continue to look at this. Climate change is here. Mm -hmm. Climate change is affecting us. Mm -hmm. And climate action as a sustainable development goal says, what can we do about it? What can we do about it, both in terms of mitigation? uh, What can we do to try to drop it down, bring it back, roll it back, or stop it from going forward? And what can we do in terms of adaptation how do we survive what is going on around us Mm -hmm. those two things have really absorbed a lot of our attention and thinking in terms of 
of ethical action and learning. We have begun to have educational programs for ourselves, which I'm offering. Uh, I've started offering just one-to-one talk. When if I talk to another organization, oh, you don't have a speaker? Why don't I come talk to you about the ethics of your closet? Right. Or maybe I just broaden and say the ethics of stuff. We right. all have too much stuff. Some of that stuff is harmful to the environment. We could do a better job in right. our own lives. Talking about the ethics of what you eat. Uh, it's not just that you should be concerned, I suppose, if we want to talk about that, a healthy diet, but let's talk about wasting that food. The statistics are that I read say that we in the United States waste, throw away, trash, one third of the food that we grow. Now that's a lot. It's almost as if you go to the grocery store and you buy three bags of groceries and just throw one on the side of the road. I know. That's it. What I can't understand is that these restaurants have food at the end of the night and they cannot give it away. There's there's a health component that looks like I, I it's there, but I think that. we need to rethink that. I understand that. We just need to that. find ways. Well, I'll tell you what I'm looking. First of all, I mean, let me just round out that sure, notion of food, food waste. By wasting that amount of food, we're putting that food, if, if we don't compost it, if we don't find some way to feed it to other people right. or to animals or put it in a compost bin, right. those are the things we need to be looking at there. We also need to be looking at better planning. Let's think about before we buy, are we really going to use it? Before we buy, how are we going to use it? How is that worked into your meal plan for the week kind of thing? Oh, you don't have a meal plan? Well, maybe it's a good idea to start thinking ahead and planning ahead. So when you talk about the wasted food that can't be given to other people from restaurants and things like that, if it's still good food, why not? What are the reasons why it can't be given? I don't know the answer to those questions, but you're hitting me with a question that that really interests me. And what I would want to know is what are the regulations? that prevent it and what can we do to plan ahead that's that same thing meal planning if you and there there are ways of eating healthy on a very small budget yeah i mean you don't have to have meat at every single meal well and you don't have to have the amount of meat that you eat mm -hmm. at every single meal well this is what we're talking about mitigation you know in terms of so you can, can start in the house. Yeah, you start right. it, You start in your own in your own kitchen. You don't That's have right. to to worry about other countries or, or right. even is the U.S. going to stay in the Paris Agreement or not? That's a big deal. But what we're doing right now at home is a factor. So when you you talk about the food, you you right. raise the other issue. There there are things we can do in terms of our food choices. Eating less meat, especially red meat, right? Especially cow. Right. in Texas, will help. Most of the environmental damage, or let's talk about re- release of greenhouse gases, comes from the production of meat. There's less of those greenhouse gases coming from hogs and pigs <laughs> than from cows. Chickens. There's, oh, chickens. Sorry. There's chickens. less coming from chickens than from hogs. Right. So and less from to, vegetables. Well, certainly down to the vegetables. Right. Even though there's food waste that goes on with the vegetables when you demand that I've got to have the tops cut off of the celery and it's all got to fit in this particular kind bag. of plastic bag. Well, I don't understand that. The waste that goes on in the field right. is because of consumption. Consumers saying, right, I have, have to, to have 
to have, to have food have that looks this perfect, way. Perfect. It has to be perfect and undamaged. Right. So there's any number of things. I, what you're touching on, I'm pretty sure we don't have time to talk about all these things. So let me just refer people to, you can look at Sustainable Development Goal 13, SDG 13. Just Google that. And know that also there the United Nations, uh, which has inspired this look, this particular way of looking mm-hmm. at the problems that we all are caring about, has something called the Lazy Person's Guide to Saving the World. Oh, really? I've taken the Lazy Person's Guide to Saving the World, turned it into a slideshow, which I'm willing to, to take around to anybody who wants to hear me talk about it. And these are simple ways that you can reduce your personal impact on the environment and make the changes. Have you, the have you contacted any of the schools? No, I haven't. I haven't done like that. high schools? I have not. Perhaps. Yeah, that might be I'm making the good. note, Ellen. I'm All writing right. it down. She's making the note. School. I'll help you do that. <laughs> Uh-oh. I'll go with you. Okay. Yeah, that Got would it. Be okay, good. Got it. Okay, I've written it down. Yes, ma'am. All right. Okay. No, so, but those are things that we personally can do. And they're amazingly simple. The thing is that there's sometimes a hassle. They're sometimes contrary to what we think we should be doing. We think that, have, that Thanksgiving should be a huge feast. So then what happens? We have all this leftovers. Not me. <laughs> Well, what do we do? I I use my leftovers. Well, see, that's the thing. If you plan ahead and you plan that's right conscientiously, and that, then I you use the leftovers. my leftovers for the next meal. Like I will buy a whole chicken, mm-hmm. knowing that Sydney and I can eat off of that whole chicken for like three days. There's a lot of meat on a chicken. Well, that's Texas. true. There's just a lot there. Right. I'm amazed. And then you and then you, you can you can bird. right. And and as the days go on, the amount of meat gets less Mm -hmm. so then I just incorporate more vegetables and more rice you've got spaghetti sauce Mm -hmm. I mean you got spaghetti there's lots of things you could do I'm a fan of turmeric and curry powder myself I like that there are a lot of things you can do yeah you know and and you can take the bones when they're left that's right and make soup and you get your chicken stock for your next that's right for your next good chicken soup yeah, so I can't, uh, I'm embarrassed to say how old I got before I learned to make chicken stock. Because you can buy it in a jar or a can or a box. Oh, but it's artificial this, well, artificial that. it is. That. But what I'm saying is we're used to having things That's convenient right. in a package. Right. We have to think from start to finish right. of all of this food chain, if you will, where did, where does my food come from? We don't necessarily know. If we don't grow it ourselves, we don't know who farmed it. We don't know the labor conditions in which they work. We don't know the quality of, well, is this, is this organic food? Is what kind of fertilizer was put on it? And then how to read labels. Well, yeah. So you know what's in it. How is, and you know, I'll tell you something, since we moved to Texas, well, we've been here a year and a half. So this is my first year of a small garden in Texas. North Carolina, I had a huge garden mm-hmm. for quite a while. But Texas weather is so much better for a garden. There's no reason why people just can't have a garden. Well, I agree, except that 
all of human society, all of our cultural artifacts from our proverbs to our religion to our social organization is somehow or other also related to our assumption that the world will always be the way it is. But the world is changing. That's right. The climate is changing. That's right. So the prediction is from the National Climate Assessment, Mm -hmm. uh, which was that big report people may have heard about in the news that was dropped on the day after Thanksgiving. Well, it's online. It's interesting reading. And it actually talks about what's happening in tech, what will happen in Texas. Oh, what does it say? And agriculture is going to be at risk. It's going to be at risk from drought because there's not going to be as much rainfall in parts of Texas. It's also going to be at risk from the heat. We're going to have to look at different growing seasons for things. So this doesn't happen immediately, although there's some thought that we have a very narrow window before we reach a turning point that is like point of no return. But all of this is related. So we would like to continue to have these ways to grow our food, to know more about where our food comes from. But we also need need to think about not wasting what we have and preparing for a period of time which can be somewhat uncertain. I think it's going to be a challenge in the next few years. That's one of the reasons that we're working on climate change, looking both at mitigation, trying to find ways personally to reduce our impact on the planet, and also to look at mitigation. How do we deal with where there's going to be excess rainfall and flooding right, and especially, storms? Especially when the man in the White House oh, well. refuses to acknowledge that climate change is here. Well, Sydney is waving to me, so it's the end of the show. I enjoyed talking about you Thank with you. you and finding out lots of stuff about you, <laughs> all your great jobs. <laughs> <laughs> and to my listeners, I want to thank you for spending your hour with us. And if you want to find out more about kzsm.org, you can go to their website. If you'd like to help KZSM, we can use volunteers, donations. If you want to sponsor the LNB show, email me at ebsept, at juno.com. And if you want to see some of my other shows, go to SoundCloud and Facebook. And next time, till next time, from my heart to your heart, be Be kind to yourself and to others, but stand tall and don't give away your principles and say yes to love because love is stronger than hate and love is what really binds us all together. So till next time, have a good time till then.